Really glad that you guys are here. I want to start our message this morning by asking you a question. And, and for those of you who are new to River Rock Bible Church, this is an interactive message. This is not you sit and try to stay awake while I speak. Uh, I'm actually looking for feedback. When I ask a question, I want answers. All right, so let me ask, why does the church exist? Just call it out, whatever you can think of. And let me tell you, there's a number of answers I'm not going to say there's no wrong answers, but there's a number of answers. Reach the lost. What else? Spread the gospel. Make disciples. Praise the Lord. What else? All right. Dedicated to the cause. Gathering of the saints. Worship, right? We, we just sang. We sang praise and worship to God. We pray together. Uh, we laugh together. We do life together. We make disciples. We study the word of God together. Uh, we, we learn about God. We grow in our knowledge of him. And here's the thing that I thought about this week. All of those things, all of those things, we get to do for all of eternity. Except one. Except one. Make disciples and evangelize. Those are the, that's the one thing we don't get to do. We only have this life in order to do that. We get to praise God for all eternity in his presence. We get to learn uh, and take in knowledge about who God is and understand him fully for all eternity. We get to be together and fellowship together for all eternity. Some of you are like, can I change my answer right now? I don't, I don't know that I want to be in heaven with Charlie Turner for all eternity. But we get to be there together. We get to, to have fun for all eternity together. The one thing that we are limited in, in this life, this is our one opportunity to make disciples, to reach the lost, and to evangelize people. Our theme for, for this past year has been make disciples. And the question becomes, how? How do we make disciples? And last week, you, if you were here, you got to hear a little bit about what is our strategy as a church. We're going to help people connect, grow, serve, and reach in order to help them become fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. We just finished a book, uh, a study in the series of Acts, and throughout the entire series, we saw that God has empowered us to continue the, me- the, the mission that Jesus began to do. He's empowered us through the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to make disciples, to reach the lost. And I think many, many Christians want to do that. If you ask someone, do you want to share your faith, most of them would say, absolutely, yes. But the question is, how? How do I do that? And a lot of times, we're even intimidated by that. Um, and, and I'm not a mind reader, but, but I can imagine that some of you this morning are eager. You're eager to learn how to, how to better share your faith, to find a, a solution, to find something that fits your personality. Others of you, you are scared to death. Like you came around the corner this morning and you saw that the message was on evangelism and some, some of them probably already left. But uh, you're like, man, I don't know if I'm up for this. But here's, here's why I'm so excited about this series. I'm so excited about this series because this is not about teaching you just one simple way to share the gospel. This is about you finding um, your personal style of evangelism. We're going to be doing this series for the next five weeks on Sunday mornings. It's also going on in our community groups right now. So if you're not in a community group, I want to encourage you to get in a community group and be a part of what God is doing. Uh, It's going to be life-changing as we begin to put what we learn into practice and we begin sharing. And it's my hope that over these next five, six weeks that you would share what you're learning. You would begin applying what you're learning 
and that the people that you're, you're sharing this with, you're beginning to share your faith with, that you would also be inviting them to Easter Sunday. Because Easter Sunday is going to be a day where we clearly proclaim and give people the opportunity to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so it's our prayer that, that before then, they would have heard the gospel multiple times from you. Perhaps they already become a believer, and you just bring them, and we get to celebrate together. Or that on Easter Sunday, they would have another opportunity to hear and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about this series, but as I think about this, I always come back to the question of why. Why do we share our faith? What's our motivation? And this morning, I just want us to jump right into 2 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to look at four motivations this morning for sharing our faith. We're going to spend a lot more time on the first two than the last ones. um, But I really want us to understand this. So 1 Kings chapter 6, this is a passage in the Old Testament. And what we're going to see is what I call the stockpile factor. The stockpile factor is one of our motivations. So 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, we read this. Sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram brought his whole army units together and marched up and they besieged Samaria. All right, so we have the entire uh, city, northern kingdom of Israel is besieged. The city is besieged. They're inside of a wall. They have no way to get out. They're surrounded, and they can't get food or water in. And so what happens is they become extremely desperate. And we read that, that uh, there was a great famine, and they continued the siege against it until a donkey's head sold for 80 silver shekels and a cup of dove's dung sold for five silver shekels. You think they're desperate? They're desperate for food. If you continue on, you read later that there's actually, uh, they resort to cannibalism. A mother eats her own child because the famine is so bad. There is absolutely no food. This is a desperate situation. Let's skip over to 2 Kings 7, starting in verse 3. We're going to read this. Four men with a skin disease were at the entrance to the gate. They said to each other, why just sit here until we die? If we say, let's go into the city, we will die because of the famine is in the city. But if we sit here, we will also die. So now, come on, let's go to the Aramean camp. If they let us live, we live. If they kill us, we will die. So you have four men who have what is often just called leprosy. They have some sort of skin disease, and they have nowhere to go. They're looking at each other, and they say, look, we're, we're stuck outside the city uh, between a rock and a hard place. If, if we stay here, we're going to starve to death, or eventually our leprosy is going to kill us. If we go in the city... They may stone us for trying to get in the city, or, or we're going to die and starve in there. At least if we go over to the Aramean camp and we surrender, they might take us in and give us some food. I mean, the worst thing they can do is just kill us right there, but at least it'll be a swift death. You know, they're going to cut our head off with a sword, but at least we die quickly. I don't want to starve to death. And so what do they do? What do they do? Verse 5 says, So the diseased men got up at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. When they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that there was not a single man there, for the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and the great army. The Arameans said to each other, The king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of of Egypt to attack us. So they had gotten up and fled at twilight, abandoning their tents, horses, donkeys. The camp was intact, and they had fled for their lives. So somewhere in the middle of the night, God causes this great confusion in the Aramean camp. 
and they all leave in the middle of the night. They think these two great armies, the Hittites and the Egyptians, have now surrounded them because of what God has done. And so when the lepers show up, they walk into this camp, and what do they see? They see fire still going. Breakfast is still hot. The bacon, ah, bacon, you can just smell it in the air. Their food is still going. There's bread. There's, there's water, fresh water. There's new wine. There's an abundance of provision. And what do they do? What do they do? Let's go on and, and see what happens. They begin, they picked up the silver, the gold, the clothing. They went off and they hid them. They came back and entered another tent, picked up things and hid them. Then they said to each other, what we are doing is not right. Today is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning, our sin will catch up with us. Let us go and tell the king's household. And so what do they do? They get up and they run to the city gates and they bang on the city gates and they say, you're not going to believe this, but the camp is empty. The Aramean camp is empty and there's food there. And the gatekeeper probably sends a couple men to check it out and make sure that what they're telling them is true, and they find out that what happened, they find out that this, this camp is full of provision, full of food, and the entire city is saved. The entire city is saved because these men took the good news that they had discovered and they shared it with the rest of the city. And salvation comes to the city that day. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that they're sitting there and they have this great provision and they look around and they realize today is a day of good news. They say, what we're doing is not right. This is good news that we ought to be sharing with everyone else. And in that moment, in that moment, silence was an unthinkable crime that they couldn't help but share what God had done. And I believe that when believers have a proper understanding of our spiritual inheritance, we can't help ourselves but from spilling over into other people and telling them what God has done. One of, one of the most effective ways that we can develop our, our contagious faith is to keep in mind the inheritance that we have of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important that we gather together on a Sunday morning and we worship him, that we remind ourselves that we remind ourselves of our, of our own situation and how lost we were apart from Jesus Christ, but that by the grace of God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. And that through faith in him, we're restored in our relationship and we're saved. And it's, it's that weekly reminder. It needs to be a daily reminder that daily we get up, we spend time in his word and we remind ourselves of the great stockpile of inheritance that God has given us, the treasures that he's blessed us with, and that out of the overflow of that, that we would begin to share with the people around us, that we would begin to share about that. Sadly, I often um, watch people, we watch people go to try to find their treasures in so many different things. They go from bar to bar, from relationship to relationship, from the newest toy to the next newest toy, looking for meaning. They're eating from the refuse pile. And we have a stockpile of abundance. And let me tell you, it's, it's not just the unbelievers. They're eating from the refuse pile. 
Unfortunately, I I believe that as believers, when we fail to recognize the inheritance, the good things, the spiritual gifts, the blessings that God has given to us, and we begin to look for fulfillment in the world, that we're no better off than those who are eating from the refuse pile, trying to find their life's fulfillment in the next relationship, in the next toy, in the next pay race, in the next job, in the next friendship. But when we cling to that inheritance that Jesus Christ has blessed us with, then we understand that abundance. That abundance begins to overflow out of our lives into the lives of the people around us, and we begin to see things change. And and understand this. This is something that, that strikes me, is that Satan wants nothing more than for spiritual princes and princesses to feel like spiritual paupers. He wants, he wants you to be focused on all the things that you don't have rather than seeing the great provision that God has placed in your life. And, in, and there are times in my own life when I wrestle with this and all I can think of is the things that aren't going right in my life. And then I'm reminded. I'm reminded as I open God's word or as I have a conversation with someone in our, in our community group about the great abundance of provision that God has placed in my life. And it it inspires me. and It makes me want to go out. And it makes me want to sit down next to people and do weird things like I do at a coffee shop. And when I see someone that I don't know, and I just look over and I try some way like, hey, I'm not looking at your screen, but I notice like your your CPA, you know, or or whatever. And they're like turning their computer like this, like quit looking over my shoulder, but, you know, I try to find some way to start a conversation, and sometimes it's just as awkward as standing up and saying, I'm Charlie Turner, I work out of here pretty often, I've never seen you here before. Tell me about yourself. What do you do? Tell me about your family. How long you lived in Georgetown? And yes, it's awkward, but I'm looking. How can I share my faith? How can I build a relationship with this person? Because I've got a stockpile of abundance that I believe needs to be shared. The second reason, the second reason uh, that I really believe we ought to be motivated to share our faith is the reality of hell. The reality of hell. And I know this isn't something that, I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. I know we have some visitors this morning, so please, I'm not going to start yelling and banging on my Bible. Uh, I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher, preacher. If you've been here a while, you know I'm not neurotic about this. Like, I'm not going to be standing up holding signs over I-35, turn or burn, turn or burn, right? That's not me, uh, at least not this week. Uh, but there is a very real, uh, hell is a very real place, and real people go there. And the reason they go there is not because they have done bad things. And, and let, me enter, let, me, let me make this absolutely clear. You do not go to heaven because you've done good things and hell because you've done bad things. The only reason you go to heaven is because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. The only reason you go to hell is because you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's the only reason. Um, elders, forgive me, but I heard a pastor start his message once this way. He said, there are people all around you who are dying and going to hell, and most of you don't give a damn. And most of you are now more offended that I just said damn than you are that there are people going to hell. It was fun being your pastor. Uh, it was a great three and a half years. It was a good run. Uh, thanks for putting up with me. But, but unfortunately, that's so true within the church. That we're more offended by a word that someone says than by the reality that they are going to hell. 
And this was a very important topic to Jesus. I want us to look at at uh, Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And, and what we see throughout Jesus' ministry is, is he gets up early. He stays up late. We see that, that he goes places that no one else wants to go. Um, he kept a pace of life that was at times just unthinkable. Uh, uh, the type of ministry that he did, he endured ridicule. And why, ridicule, why did he do all of this? Because Jesus knew that hell was a very real place. And he wanted to do everything he could to keep people from going there. And so we read this story in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Uh, and it says this, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. So this is a story, this is interesting. He goes on and says that there's a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. He was left at this man's gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. And I think it's interesting. Now, a lot of times we read this and we think Jesus is telling a parable, and and I happen to be in the camp of people who don't think Jesus is telling a parable. And here's why. Usually when Jesus tells a parable, he says, there were two men. But in this case, he gives one of the men a name, Lazarus. And so I think Jesus is speaking about two very real people. And he doesn't want to embarrass the rich man because perhaps maybe the men in the city, the people in the city knew who that rich man was and they knew who Lazarus was. And he doesn't want to bring embarrassment. So I believe that this is a very real story that Jesus is sharing about this rich man who put all of his hope and his riches in Lazarus, this poor man. And if you go on and you read the story, what you find out is that somehow both men die. And Lazarus has received God's forgiveness and he ends up in God's presence forever in heaven. And then we read that this other man, the rich man, ends up spending eternity in hell. And we read this in in verse 23. He says, And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Beside all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to, to you cannot. Neither can those from, from there cross to us. And then he says this in verse 27, Father, he said, then I beg you to send, send him to my father's house because I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they won't come to this place also, this place of torment. Do you get this? Five minutes in hell and this man has become an evangelist. Five minutes in hell and this man says, I need to do everything I can to keep everyone else from coming here. Please send them to my father's house. Go tell my brothers. Because I don't want anyone else to end up where I am. Hell is a very real place. And very real people go there. And it's not something that we should even wish on our enemies. When I see news stories about ISIS, and uh, I can remember even before um, Osama bin Laden was taken out, uh, when I was younger, like I wanted nothing more than to see them pay for what they did. But then I began praying, 
And I began praying and praying and praying, and my heart began to break. And, and the realization of where they would spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ began to hit me. And my prayers began to change. And that doesn't mean that there shouldn't still be consequences for actions that are taken, but, but my desire would be to see those people come to faith in Jesus Christ. What greater testimony? You want to talk about a road to Damascus, a, a Saul, someone whose life is flipped completely upside down. That ought to be our, our greatest desire. And if we're going to desire that for our enemies, shouldn't we desire that for our friends and neighbors and our coworkers? I often get, get asked throughout my life in ministry, I've been asked to be a part of a number of interfaith groups where it's not just Christians getting together, but it's Christians and Jews and Muslims and um, Unitarian Universalists and all these different groups that come together and, uh, and they, they like this idea of gathering in order to just say, isn't it great that we're all on the same team? And I, I get invited to these things and I always turn them down because, because I don't want to ever give the impression that we are all equal, that we are all headed to the same place. Because I truly believe Jesus' words in John 14, 6, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. I believe that. I believe that there is no other path to heaven except through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And I know that that sounds uh, narrow-minded. I know that sounds arrogant, but that is what I believe because that is what Scripture teaches and for me to sit in a group of people or to be up on stage and to offer prayer after people who are offering prayers to other gods and to pretend that we are all on the same page, to me, is unthinkable. And I was challenged once by a pastor who said, well, don't you think the loving thing to do is to just be with them and, and encourage them? And I thought, that is, that is the last thing that I would call loving. How is it loving for me to sit across from someone else and to tell them that you, you are just, your religion is equally as valid, when in my heart I know that they are destined to hell if they continue on that path and do not be, put their trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. To me, that is not love. To me, the loving thing to do is not to yell at them or to beat them over the head with my Bible, but to establish a relationship with them and to let them know, I love you and I care about you, and here's why I'm sharing this with you. Here is why I want you to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, because I do not want you to spend eternity in hell. Like I said, those of you who know me, you know I'm not neurotic about this, but it's something that we've got to realize. This is a reality. That people apart from Jesus Christ, are, are destined to spend eternity in hell. We're not just playing church. We're not just, we're not just going through the motions. This isn't playing games. This is life and death, eternal life and death that we're talking about here. I think about Jesus on the cross. He's hanging there on the cross, and he's stuck between two common criminals. Think about the physical the mental and emotional and spiritual torment that he is going through is hanging there. And one of the thieves on the cross next to him says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And with everything that Jesus has going on in his life, the Son of God, for the first time in his entire existence going to eternity past, for the first time in his life, he is separated from God the Father. Yet even in the midst of that anguish and agony, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. He finds the strength in himself to say, this day you will be with me in paradise. 
And as he is on his way out, he finds the strength to grab one more sinner and move them from death to life, from an eternity in hell to an eternity in heaven. Shouldn't we have the same motivation? Shouldn't we have the same desire to see people move? Not just because we have a stockpile of abundance, but because of the reality of hell. Third, real quick, uh, that I want to hit is um, that we ought to consider it a privilege to be used by God. One of our motivations is that we get to be used by God. We just finished this series in the book of Acts, and if you remember Acts 1.8, we read this in Acts 1.8. It says that you will be my witnesses, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we read this, and we read that you will receive power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you, Do you believe that that same power, the power that lives in us, not in some building somewhere, but that power lives in us is the exact same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Do you know that? Six of you do. That's great. Jesus had 12 and he changed the world. We can do this. We got it. We can get Georgetown with six. Do you believe that God has given you that power that raised Jesus from the dead? Let me hear you say amen. Amen. We have that same power, and God wants to use us. God wants to use us. Let me tell you, there is no greater reward. I've been in full-time Christian ministry for 13 years now, 14 years now. Uh, I have I've been uh, a believer since I was six years old, 29 years. And I've had the privilege of, of leading people to faith. And there is nothing better for me than to get an email from one of my former students when I was a youth pastor who, who tells me that, hey, you don't know this, but when you were our youth pastor, um, I came to Christ because of, and, and I don't ever remember any messages that I preached, but they remember it, and they say, you know, God used you, and he moved me from a path headed towards hell to a path in heaven, and I'm going to be in heaven forever because of you, and have neighbors, and have coworkers, and friends who who write you notes and letters or come up to you and say, you know, you don't realize this, but last year when we talked, my grandfather was dying and you shared Jesus with me. That changed my eternity. There is no greater thing that I can think of than to be used by God in that way. That God wants to use you. Do you realize that God does not have a plan B? We are plan A and he does not have a plan B. He does not intend for us to fail. The last thing I want us to see is, is simply this, reward. The reward of sharing our faith with others, and I, I already got to share that with you, but man, how cool would it be on Easter Sunday for someone that you've been pouring into, that you've been establishing a relationship, that you've begun, you've begun applying the tools that you're learning on how to share your faith throughout the week, at work, at school, and you begin sharing your faith, and you invite them on Easter Sunday. And in that day, they come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they turn to you and say, uh, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be on my way to heaven. Thank you. Thank you for letting God use you. What a great reward. Not only that, but we have the reward of being able to stand before our Heavenly Father and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I used to think that was something that was only reserved for the people that did great and mighty things, the Billy Grahams of the world. But then I I focused in on faithful servant. 
Faithfulness has nothing to do with the magnitude of what we do. Just will we be faithful? That's what he's looking for. He's looking for everyday, ordinary people to just be faithful with the message that he has given us. So will you join with us? Will you join with us? Why should we share our faith? Because we've got a stockpile of blessings that God has given us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why should we share our faith? Because hell is a very real place and very real people are headed there. Why should we share our faith? Because God wants to use you. He wants to use you. Why should we share our faith? Because there's no greater reward than that we can experience in this life than to know that we have played a role in Jesus Christ entering someone else's life, that God has used us in that way. We're going to be in this series for the next five weeks leading up to Easter on Easter Sunday. We're going to have one final message um, that is going to clearly lay out the gospel. And again, my prayer is that you would use these next five weeks, that you, if you are not already in a community group, that you would go to the back table today and that you would sign up for a community group and that you would get in a group because we're going through this series based on Bill Heibel's book, Becoming a Contagious Christian. We're going through this series on Sunday mornings and in our community groups. You will learn multiple ways to share your faith. And you're going to learn which one of those ways fits you. So this is not about cookie cutter, fit in, whatever formula we give you. This is about you learning to be used by God in a very special way.